Hello, my name is Adam Eason. Welcome to episode 40 of Hypnosis Weekly. friends and a very warm welcome back to Hypnosis Weekly. Once again, in my own highly biased opinion, I think I have a stellar show lined up for you today. In fact, it's rad balls. It's dookie fresh. It is the shizzle and it will be off the heezy for sheezy. Yes, indeed. Big thanks to Andy Barrett helping me to be cool and urban today. In a short while, I'll be sharing with you an interview with my guest, Barry Thane. Then I'll be looking at the hypnosis in the news stories, examining the media where hypnosis has featured. I'm going to offer up some personal, subjective commentary on the ways hypnosis is portrayed in the media, but also comment on some of the content of those media stories. We then return with our professional discussion with my guest, Barry Thane. We shall be exploring the client intake and assessment procedure that Barry adheres to in his therapy work with his patients. We'll round things off with this week's hypnosis evidence-based factoid before I bid you farewell for another week. As I say word for word at the beginning of every single Hypnosis Weekly episode, this podcast is something that I want to encompass a feeling of embracing diversity and celebrating the field of hypnosis and encouraging friendly, professional, enjoyable discussion and debate, as well as doing its best to inform and educate I do not share the same stance as most of our guests and at times have major differences in approach and leaning, but all are incredibly lovely people who I'd happily talk with until late in the pub, and all of whom, following their time here on Hypnosis Weekly, I have a great deal of respect for. If you have questions, queries, thoughts or feedback, do get in touch via the Hypnosis Weekly website. All the references made in the discussions, along with related links, are posted at each episode on the website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. You can add your thoughts, comments, and make any suggestions there too. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and anywhere else to help us reach more of the hypnosis community. It's greatly appreciated. So first of all today is this week's interview. It is with great pleasure that I welcome Barry Thane to Hypnosis Weekly. Barry is someone I remember being active on hypnosis forums with me before the internet was as it is today, the real frontier lands of the dot alt groups, where I cut my teeth debating hypnosis in the earlier days of my career, before actual organised forums and Facebook groups were even conceived. Even then, as now, Barry never pulled his punches when it came to how he communicates about hypnosis, and today on Hypnosis Weekly is no exception to that either. What I've learned over the years for sure, though, is that Barry is incredibly passionate about this subject matter and this professional field, and I believe his strong opinions are indicative of that. Today, here on Hypnosis Weekly, Barry is incredibly generous in sharing his experiences and knowledge, and he even shows us some of his soft, marshmallowy underside at one point. Do look out for that. For now, though, get comfy, my friends, turn up the volume, sip on your tea, enjoy this week's interview. So, as I've just been discussing, I'm delighted to be joined today on Hypnosis Weekly by the one and only Mr. Barry Thane. Barry, welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Hello, Adam. 
Um, um, so let's roll our sleeves up. Let's um, um, let's get straight stuck in. Tell us a little bit. How did you get into this field? Can you tell us a bit about your background and how you've arrived at where you are now? Uh, sure. I I got into it completely by accident. Um, mm. At the time, I was the managing director of a management consultancy, um, which I owned. I employed about a hundred people, mm. and uh, I've told I've told this story a lot and. <laughs> When I, I mean, it was a long time ago, so I've changed the details by and large to um, to hide the identities of the people that were actually involved. But the yeah. truth of the matter is it was uh, and this is the truth now because it was a long time ago. I'm sure it doesn't matter anymore. I, I had a member of, um, well, about just about our only secretary, a, a Sikh woman called Balvinda, who came to me with a copy of Valerie Austin's book, Self-Hypnosis, yeah. which she had bought for herself because she had some stuff she wanted to deal with. And um, and she was going to make herself a, a hypno cassette in order to deal with this stuff using the contents of Valerie Austin's self-hypnosis book. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, but she thought that I might make a better fist of the recording or a better cassette of the recording than she might. So she asked me if I would. And I said, I don't know anything about hypnosis. I don't, you know, not my interest not something I know. I've never seen it now. But let me read the book and I'll see what I can do. And I read Valerie Austin's book and it said two things, which I still remember. Um, it said, say these words and it will work. So, you know, <laughs> use the script and it will work. Yeah. And then it said that, um, uh, that cassettes work well, but they work much better if somebody's done it to you for real, first of all. Yeah. Of course, then I knew nothing about it. I didn't know enough to know that neither of those things were true. I was an idiot. I believed absolutely what it said. And on the basis of that, I said to Balvinda, well, look, I'll pick out the bits of script. <clears throat> and then while I'm recording it, you sit in front of me. You'll get hypnotized. Of course, say these <laughs> words and it will work. And, um, and then because you've been hypnotized, it will work that much better for you. Yeah. Um, so that's what we did. And I typed it all up because this was a long time ago in the days before scanners. And, uh, <laughs> I typed it all up, double spaced. And then after work one day in the office, I had her come sit in my office on one chair and put her feet up on another chair. And I started with you're standing on a balcony looking out over a beautiful garden. You can see the trees and hear the birds and there's a fountain splashing and all of that and went through this long progressive relaxation. Um, and then down to a special place through a big stone arch and wooden door with an iron handle and all that you know, typical sort of stuff, I suppose. Yeah. And um, and had the bits of basically it was ego strengthening stuff uh, <clears throat> for the intervention. And then I woke her up and the whole thing took about an hour. And when I woke her up, bless her, Balvinda had absolute post-hypnotic euphoria. Mm. And I thought wow, this is interesting. Yeah. You know, because up to that point, I thought, no, I knew nothing about it, except I assumed it was smoke and mirrors and people acting the goat. And, and I'd never seen Paul McKenna do anything or, you know, I had no interest mm. in it. And something had happened here. Well, I'd read the whole book, you see, because it's not a very big book. And I remember there was a bit in it which said, if you want to cut somebody's arm off without anesthetic, you do this. And um, yeah, I hadn't included – you have to bear in mind, 24 years ago or whatever it was, I hadn't discovered the word ethics. And um, so, so 
I mean, Balvinder was so kind of overwhelmed by this experience, and so was I. I mean, gobsmacked. Yeah. I said, that's interesting. Let's do it again. So I said, <laughs> all right, then. Um, and so I, 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 I went through the whole long progressive relaxation again and then got to the bit where I, in the book it said, I mean, it, it talked about um, somnambulism. Valerie Austin referred to it as somnambulism. Mm. I think other people might think of it as the Esdale state. But it, I knew where it was in the book. It had this thing about going down three other levels. And as you go yeah. down three other levels, you know, you get more and more zonked out. So um, I opened the book up and I slipped that in. Of course, I wasn't going to cut her arm off. <laughs> no, no. Because, you Not know, just I, yet, anyway. I didn't have any anaesthetic, but I didn't have <laughs> disinfectant to clean up the blood either. <laughs> so, but it, it said in the Valerie Austin book that, you know, you can put this person's arm in a wacky position and it will stay there. You know, and that's how you test to make sure. Anyway, I, so I got to the bit. I went down the three other levels. You know, I'm asking her to say floor C. She's going, I mean, she couldn't say floor C at all. I think this is all going great. I put her arm in some stupid position. Ten minutes later, it was still there. And when I woke her up, I thought there really is something quite unexpected and profound and important here. And I had a 100 staff who over the next five years would knock on my door and say, can you help me with my migraines? Can you help me with my claustrophobia? Can you help me with the fact that my husband beats me with wooden coat hangers? Um, and I had no training to begin with other than the value. So, you know, I, I was, everything was a, started off with a half-hour progressive relaxation, whatever. Mm. And I was, you know, I had people queued up at my door um, asking me to work with them, and I did. Um, and then and, and I, I thought I ought to read more about this, but back in the early 1990s, you could go to Waterstones, but they didn't have a lot of books on hypnosis at all. Mm. And I found one that had been written. I, I lent it to somebody, and I never got it back again, so I can't tell you which one it was. But basically, it said it, it had this really ridiculous thing about rapid inductions. And it suggested that you could hypnotize somebody just by getting them to squeeze their hands together and counting to three. And, you know, they wouldn't be able to take their hands apart. And then you say to them, sleep now. I thought, what a lot of nonsense. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, by this time, I'd done a lot of really good hypnotism. And I knew it took 30, 40 minutes of progressive relaxation to get anywhere. <laughs> yeah. So I went to Balvinder, who was my muse. And I said, look, <clears throat> um, I just want to try this. I mean, obviously, it's not going to work, but uh, squeeze your hands together like that for me, will you? Just squeeze them tight. tight the tighter you squeeze them, you know, the stucker they get. Um, try and take your hands apart. And I was so convinced it wouldn't work that I hadn't even asked to sit down. She was standing up. And, and she couldn't get her hands apart. And this had taken 20 seconds. And, and all your illusions were shattered. And, and I thought, oh... Bye bye progressive relaxation. <laughs> yeah. uh, and from from then on, um, you know, I, I mean, I, I know that you can only do progressive relaxations with some people, some people. Are, and in fact, I've come to the view now, just to detour a little bit, that it isn't actually inductions that are progressive or rapid. It's hypnotees who are progressive or rapid hypnotees. Mm. And you can start off on a progressive relaxation with a great hypnotee. And after 30 seconds, they'll be gone. And you just waste the other 20 and a half minutes because they've gone already after 30 seconds. 
Um, whereas with other people, they're progressive hypnotes, and you can do a rapid induction with them, but you have to keep doing it for 15 minutes or so beyond the point. And it's it, and rapid inductions have the character doesn't lend themselves to you know to continuing to do them continuing yeah. to press down on the person's hand or press up on it or whatever yeah. for 20 minutes so you know it's easier to do a prog rel so that was how i started and um having having started my commercial life in retail banking where i was heavily involved in lloyd's bank's um internal trade union i became acting chairman of the clearing bank union with a hundred thousand members um, and was then headhunted out of banking, where I was a lay union official, to become the assistant general secretary at Lloyd's Bank Group Staff Union. Uh, I worked with them for four years. Um, spent most of my time in Lombard Street at head office discussing the international jet debt crisis with Sir Jeremy Morse and people like that. Mm. And then, and then left um, trade unionism to work as a management consultancy for a French company. Uh, was very interested in their methods of work, but actually thought that the Gallic approach wasn't quite right for a UK market. So then pretty much ripped off 60% of their methods of work and, and made it a bit more anglicized and ran my own management consultancy for a number of years, um, providing management consultancy to small and medium-sized companies. Yeah. And then, then I... You know, it was while I was doing that that I started doing hypnosis. I spent, I had a couch in my office. I spent much more of some of my day delegating the responsibility for the management consultancy to my management team, which I think is good management. <laughs> yeah. And I was doing 20, 20 inductions a day. Wow. Practicing. Yeah. And, and the great advantage of it was there was no commercial imperative. I was paying these people to be here. They didn't have to pay me. So they could come, they would come and say, can you help me with whatever? And I'd say, I don't know. Let's try. Mm. And so over that, over the those five years, and before I closed the management consultancy to to do clinical hypnotism full time, um, I had an enormous opportunity, which I used to the full, to um, to experiment and explore. And like I say, I hadn't I hadn't discovered the word ethics, so I did all the stuff about. Uh, you know, um, I, you know, whatever. Having people drunk on a glass of water and mm. and worse. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and and I think that was really valuable for me because by the time I came to then to go and do formal training with LCCH, I had an awful lot of experience, and I spent a lot of time at LCCH being told that it wasn't possible to do things that I'd been doing routinely for the last five years. Yeah. So I sat there and I thought, well, that's interesting. I mean, I didn't complain about it because I wasn't there to rock the boat. But, um, you know, I was told, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that. And I, I knew you could because I'd mm. been doing it. Mm. And I'd been doing it consistently and repeatedly for a long time. Mm. So, yeah, I, I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated with with that notion as well because I I, I often speak about the, the 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 frame, the impact, and the influence upon the 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 hypnotic relationship of someone paying and someone investing financially in it, and the fact that you worked so prolifically with people that that weren't paying. Quite the contrary, 
mm. is, is is really refreshing to hear. Very, very interesting indeed. And I think that's a, that's actually a very important point because there is there is a lot said about people having to invest in the process. You can go all the mm. way back to people turning up late for Freud and being told that you know they weren't sufficiently invested in the process. Mm. Not notwithstanding the fact that they'd sold the farm in order to have five sessions a week of forty minutes for five years and, stuff <laughs> yeah. and not get anywhere. But <clears throat> but um, actually, I think that it doesn't. I I allocate I, I can do 20 sessions a week 21 with an emergency evening session which I don't very often do um, I allocate two of the 20 sessions a week to pro bono work um, yeah. and I think it, it does in terms of the effectiveness of what I do it doesn't matter at all whether they're paying or pro bono there are, mm. there are many, many other things that matter a whole lot more than that. Mm. Um, I think what really is important is that my attitude doesn't vary on the basis of whether they're paying or pro bono. I think yeah. that's really yeah. important. I don't have a different mindset, um, I, 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 but I really don't think it's about their mindset. Mm. Mm. I'm, 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 I'm fascinated by that. So, um, I, you know, I'm raising a wry smile while I ask you this question and for people that are unaware I'll explain why I'm smiling now um, tell us a little bit how do you define hypnosis Barry and and how did you arrive at this definition you know do you do you explain hypnosis to your clients um, and if so could you give us an idea of, of how I define hypnosis as a state of consciousness in which a person apparently loses the power of voluntary action <clears throat> and is highly responsive to suggestion or direction. Mm. Um, how did I arrive at that definition? Easy. I googled define hypnosis. Uh -huh. And that's what you get. When you right. look it up yeah. in a dictionary, that's what you get. But actually, that definition... Um, does reflect my experience sure um i am aware of other definitions of course yeah. there's the hypnotherapist definition which you can also look up and that runs along the lines of um hypnosis is the process of inducing a trance-like state a safe natural daydreamy relaxed i'm quoting from a hypnotherapy faqs here <laughs> daydreamy relaxed state during which you're able to focus and concentrate more easily of course you can come out of it at any time you wish, as you are in control at all times. You are mm. not asleep, and you can never be made to do anything that you do not want to do. Now, that simply doesn't explain my experience over the last 23 years. Yeah. And, and in fact, I think that sort of thing can only be written by somebody who has no knowledge of hypnotism or hypnosis whatsoever. Um, but I also think it's bad for business. Mm. And I think it's bad for business because with the best will in the world, patients don't come to us because of Ericsson or Elman or Eason. Mm. Patients come to hypnotists because they've seen Paul McKenna make somebody fall in love with a mop. And they think if he can make them fall in love with a mop, he can make me fall out of love with my cigarettes. That's yeah. why they come to us. They come to hypnotists when they're desperate they come to hypnotists when they've seen the doctor, the psychologist, the psychiatrist. They've had Reiki, reflexology, a dozen Chinese herbal remedies, and they're still not right. Mm. And they come to a hypnotist because they be believe because of what they've seen with the wacky stage hypnotists and all of that, 
all the things that we some sometimes pompously think of as bad publicity they think hypnotists can make them do something they can't make themselves do that's precisely why they come to us so then to put on the website i can't make you do anything you wouldn't normally do seems commercially suicidal to me sure. and i've had on my website for you know for 20 years if i hypnotize you your reality will be whatever i tell you it is and i can relieve you of your plastic and your pin number and go and run around richmond park naked for an hour while i empty your bank account because frankly if i can't do that why suppose i can take your grief away sure you know if i can't if i can't deprive you of your plastic why well, think i can deprive you of your misery mm. um so i i think I mean, I do understand this fear that people have, because I've discussed this in the past. I understand the fear that people have, oh, if I tell them that, you know, when I hypnotize them, I'm going to be in control and all of that, and nobody will come to me, um, because that often they're taught that at school, uh, hypno school. But I've been saying that for years and years and years, and it hasn't stopped. Well, I don't know how many people it stopped coming to me, of course. But I see, you know, between 12 and 16 patients every week, and I'm not sure how many hypnotherapists do that. Then, of course, there's the third definition, which comes from the non-statists. And the non-statists define hypnosis like this. They say, hypnosis is the use of communication to alter a person's perceived reality. Well, maybe. But if I phone somebody and say, hello, I'm phoning from the local hospital. I'm afraid to tell you your husband's been killed in a car crash. That's going to alter that person's perceived reality. Yeah. It's not hypnosis. No. Um, so I think, you know, that pers pers there, there are lots of ways of persuading people, but that doesn't make it hypnotism or hypnosis. Um, I do have, if anyone's interested... A more technical explanation of hypnotism. I mean, I'm going to stick with the dictionary definition because I think if you want a dictionary, go to the definition, not a, ha a handful of, you know, uh, marginal individuals that have decided for whatever reason that it needs to be something that's almost the, the opposite of the dictionary definition. Um, but you see, the, 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 the non-statist definition, hypnosis is the use of communication to alter a person's perceived reality, is actually a definition of something. It's a definition of gulling. But it's important to dis distinguish between gullibility and hypnotizability, between gulling and hypnotize. There are some people who are just gullible. You can tell them anything and they'll go, oh, really? You know, it's a beautiful sunny day outside. My landlady is so gullible. If I tell her it's snowing, she's going, Really? She's really gullible, but that's not hypnotism. Of course, nobody wants to advertise themselves as gullers. No. Being a hypnotist <laughs> is much sexier. Yeah. And also, also, nobody Googles, you know, I'm looking for a guller. Mm. But the non-state, yes, I mean, there are lots and lots of ways of making people believe something. And there are lots of ways of doing therapy. And there are lots of psychotherapies that don't require any hypnotic content whatsoever. That yeah. doesn't make hypnotism. Mm. But in terms of a, a more technical explanation of hypnotism, which I I think I've arrived at from experience, yeah. I suggest that hypnotism is the consensual management of the capacity for inductive reasoning. Mm. Um, so let's look at that. Let's break that down. Unpack it. Consensual. I think hypnotism's 
generally a one-to-one or one-to-many type of communication in which the parties have agreed to engage. It does share certain characteristics with brainwashing and mind control, but only in the same way that, um, say, providing um, palliatively morphine to you know people with chronic pain or terminal conditions is similar to providing a junkie with with his um, horse yes Uh, but it differs fundamentally by being consensual so i think consensual is an important component Um, consensual management of the capacity for inductive reasoning hypnotism isn't therapy per se no Uh, it's the establishment maintenance and dismantling or management of a phenomenon or a state which is conducive to the exercise of therapy and then uh, hypnotism is the consensual management of the capacity for inductive reasoning Uh, there are two main kinds of intellectual reasoning i think inductive and deductive inductive reasoning enables us to um, figure out the big picture from its constituent elements. Deductive right. reasoning allows us to appreciate the constituent elements from the big picture. Mm. Uh, when a trance is induced, I think a hypnotist is moved into a state of mind where their capacity for inductive reasoning can be suspended. Dave Ellman, a doyen of medical hypnotists, called this the establishment of selective thinking mm-hmm. in his uh, findings in hypnosis book. Yeah. The capacity for inductive reasoning can be suspended completely, in which case the hypnotist is left only with the ability to deduce. Um, For both stage and clinical hypnotism, however, I think it's preferable that the hypnotist's capacity for inductive reasoning is only suspended with regard to specific suggestions made by the hypnotist. So when a stage hypnotist tells tells a hypnotist that they're in love with a mop, they will be. They can't inductively reason uh, it's a mop used for cleaning floors and generally I prefer to love women, therefore I do not love this mop. Sure. They can only deduce all the behaviour which flows from their model of love and express those behaviours accordingly. Mm. At the same time, however, they can hold a perfectly rational discussion about macroeconomics or whatever else. Um, in which they can both induce and deduce normally. So I think hypnotism is the consensual management of the capacity for inductive reasoning. Lots of people can get limb catalepsy or idiomotor responses, and they think they're doing hypnotism. Um, Some people think eye closure equals hypnotism. I remember LCCH, um, our first tutor said, OK, everybody, close your eyes. There you are, you're hypnotized. <clears throat> well, you know, eye closure doesn't equal hypnotism. Um, they may have achieved some kind of trance, but trance and hypnotism are not the same, just like dogs and poodles are not the same. Yeah. Um, as Elman says of his famous eye closure, but does that mean you are hypnotized? Indeed, it does not. Mm. Merely the entering wedge, and hypnosis is not obtained until selective thinking is firmly established. What Elman doesn't say is what this establishment of selective thinking is exactly. Mm. Well, I think it's the management of the capacity for inductive reasoning. And when it's done consensually, that's hypnotism. When it's done for therapeutic ends, that's clinical hypnotism. When it's done for entertainment, it's stage hypnotism. Mm. Mm. I, um, I'm, I'm, I, 
I said at the beginning, um, um, just before answering, asking you that this particular question, that I was raising a wry smile simply because the the. Uh, I, I know the very the very popular group that you run on Facebook, the Mindside group. Um, one of the rules is um, that there is, that there is to be no discussion of the definition of hypnosis. Um, I'm, I'm, and and so uh, uh, you know, I, I was having a bit of a smile to myself with regards to that. Um, I've and, seen so many punch ups in other <laughs> yeah, groups. Yeah, exactly. While the statists and the non-statists and the relaxotherapists or the hypnotherapists, whatever you want to call them, um, all pile in with you know my way is the right way. Yeah. Um, I I think, and unfortunately, that gets in a way of a lot of debate where the status and the non-status and the relaxotherapists, we all share common ground. Um, so I, I've, I've banned, I, I run Mindside, my Mindside 2 group, um, not as a democracy, but as a benign dictator. Um, <laughs> and and uh, I don't think we have punch-ups. Um, well, I think that's it, probably what keeps it alive. Mm, um, you know, I mean, to be honest, almost everything has been discussed over and over and over again. So what tends yeah. to happen online is you know, a new group will come up and, uh, and that'll be, you know, it'll, it'll be very, very active for six months or so while everybody piles in and has the same old discussion that they've had in umpteen. Other. You can see there are certain groups of people who are, um, who are associated, associated with, each, with each other that travel around from group to group to, and have the same old argument over and over again. Mm. Uh, life is too long, I think, for, yeah. <laughs> keep, for doing that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Barry, tell me, uh, t tell me about, I mean, you, you've made reference to, to a few, um, um, a, a few influences so far, you know, positive or negative. Tell us, tell us about some of your, your major influences in this field and perhaps some of the books and authors that have taught you most and some of the teachers that have been most influential upon you and perhaps even some of the reasons why. Have you ever heard of Dr. Kenneth Sacek? No, I haven't. Well, I think every hypnotist and hypnotherapist ought to have done and if I was going to um, look at the the pantheon of um, fathers of modern hypnotherapy and we all know yeah. about Erickson and Elman don't we or at least us in us in the trade do yeah. um, and very few people know about Dr. Ken Sacek uh, but I'd have him up there above Erickson and Elman Mm -hmm. Although he was fundamentally Ericksonian himself, and I am not, mm -hmm. um, and I, Ken Sacek, who I think might possibly not be with us anymore, um, he began suffering with um, motor neurone disease back in, I think, around about 2004-05. Um, and I suspect so I suspect he may not be with it. He certainly retired from practice in 2006. Mm. But he was the original owner of the domain hypnotherapy.com. It's, right. it's not worth going to now, in my humble opinion. Mm. But he was the original owner. And back in 1996, he started publishing a, a series of um, well, a, a series called hypnosis, your que hypnotherapy, your questions answered. Yeah. And he kept publishing until, I think, the mid-2000s. Um, and then he and, – and over the last couple of years, he slowed – it used to be a monthly publication. It became bi-monthly. Um, and eventually, he stopped publishing. And then he sold hypnotherapy.com, and the archive disappeared. The archive oh. – all those papers that he'd published 
disappeared. Shame. Fortunately, before it disappeared, I saved them all. Um, so I have a complete c collection. Um, and one of these days I will talk to his estate, if I can, about publishing them, because I think everyone ought to have access to them. Mm. Um, not, not because you have to agree with what he said, and I certainly don't agree with a lot of what he said, but I absolutely love the way he said it. Mm. Um, so Dr. K Dr. Ken Sacek, and he was very particular about the doctor. You know, he, he, he said in a number of his public, I worked hard. Some, some people write in Dear Ken, and he slapped <laughs> them down. He said, you know, bloody hard for this doctor. Dr. Ken. <laughs> yes. Um, and if, if, if you've got enough time, I'd like to just read very quickly. Yeah, or, please do. Uh, very quickly to, um, to something he posted in December 2001, which was volume six, number 10 of his hypnotherapy questions answered, which was uh, somebody, uh, somebody called Alex wrote in and said, I think practitioners may find this. I've been trying to learn the Ericksonian handshake and can't seem to get it right. I start off by smiling warmly when I first see the person. Then when we shake hands, I change to a blank look on my face and try to slowly change my focus to look through the person while at the same time ambiguously letting go of their hand. When I do this, I feel like I'm going more into a trance than the client. <laughs> Am I doing it wrong or should I add some suggestions while doing it or shock them by yelling suddenly? I would appreciate any advice you can offer with this technique. Thank you, Alex. And Ken, Dr. Ken Sajic wrote back and he said, Alex, you will always fail at the Ericksonian handshake for one simple reason you are overlooking. And it has nothing to do with your abilities, although I must say your methods are naive. Mm. You are not Ericsson. I can tell... That you are in, I can tell you that you're in distinguished company. Some of the most well-known Ericksonians of the day have attempted his famous handshake, by which he could induce a seemingly spontaneous trance and have failed. And I'll tell you why. All are assuming the handshake is a matter of a specialised technique, but Erickson used paradigms, not techniques. Despite all the codification NLP seeks to impose upon his methodology. Mm. Milton Erickson was a psychiatrist with incredible powers of observation, perhaps intuition as well, with a monumental ability to learn and store in information. When he used his handshake induction, which did use as its focal, which did use confusion as his focal dynamic, he observed enough about that person, even if he just met him, and even in an extremely brief amount of time, to know how to confuse that person into trance with a handshake. If you had <clears throat> all the education and experience and talent of Dr. Erickson, then you'd be able to master a similar procedure. If you were a professional clinician, I'd suggest you create one of your own. Mm. But, so, you know, don't try and do Erickson's handshake, do Thane's handshake or Alex's handshake or Adam's handshake or whatever. Yeah. Um, but as I've admonished time and time again, don't play around with hypnosis. Mm. It's not a party game, and you can seriously harm others, which you will regret perhaps for the rest of your life. In the last month's issue, a young man asked how to hypnotize someone in under 30 seconds. In the previous issue, a man about your age tried to hypnotize a girlfriend, which resulted in the girl suffering traumatic and severe repercussions. The irony is that in the hands of a well-trained clinician, hypnotherapy is one of the safest of all psychiatric modalities. To state it metaphorically... 
There's a mineral called pyrite. It looks and shines like gold, so much so it's commonly called fool's gold. A geologist can easily distinguish the difference. A fool can't. Mmm, like that. Ken Sacek, my hypno-hero. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I learned something today because, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very ignorant towards, uh, towards him. This is the first time, first exposure I've had to him. So um, I'll be going and doing a bit of Googling uh, later on today as well. <laughs> Um, 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 tell, tell me, Barry. Um, um, you know, you, you have um, a, you know, a real depth of experience. You know, and, and have been an incredibly prolific and busy therapist um, um, using hypnosis over the years. In that time, what have been some of the more or, or, or one of the most impressive applications of hypnosis that you've directly witnessed? Um, There have been times when I have wanted to take the top off the patient's head and look inside and find out what on earth happened there. Um, one which I've written up and some people may be familiar with, so apologies to them if I bore them, um, con concerned a young man, a teenager, who was, whose mother brought him to me because he had, uh, because he stammered. Mm. And um, and I wasn't I'd never treated anybody for a stammer. Nobody had asked me to treat them for a stammer. I didn't really think that hypnosis was probably a good thing. The mother had spoken to another therapist in the West End somewhere who'd promised, you know, guaranteed results. I said, go there first. Uh, but she came to me anyway. Mm. Uh, the boy had ADHD. He was medicated for that. Um, um, but and when I when he arrived and I tried to take the case history, um, I he couldn't get three syllables out without curling fetally around the last one that he couldn't let go of, and it was pitiful. And I looked at this, and hand on heart, I thought, I can't help. Uh, you know, this is like getting on the couch with one leg and expecting to get off again with two. Yeah. Um, there were some dad issues uh, as well. And the mother asked if I could help with the dad issues. And I said we were here to do the stammering. And that was reprehensible of me because I was, if I'm, I shouldn't say this for broadcast, but anyway, here we go. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I was taking the dad stuff away because I thought I could help with that. And I thought if I take it away enough, they'll want it so much that I can do the dad stuff. And then they'll forget about the fact that I haven't stopped him stammering. Mm. Um, and that's honestly how I was thinking anyway eventually I put him on the couch and I hypnotized him and that looked too good I thought he's acting you know he, he wasn't the sharpest tool in the box um, he did have ADHD he was on Ritalin so that didn't help mm. um, I got idiomotor responses and you know when I asked for a finger for yes it was so kind of strong and powerful and whatever I thought now oh, he's playing along you know, he's, he's not got it. <laughs> he's yeah. just sticking. His, this is conscious compliance. Um, but funnily enough, when I said, OK, you can put your finger down now, he didn't put it down. And I said, yes, all right. I've got, you know, I know that's yes. So you put your finger down. He still didn't put it down. In the finish, I had to press it down. And there was a lot of resistance. Mm. And I thought, well, you know, if this was just conscious compliance, he'd get the idea when I pushed his finger. He'd just put it down, wouldn't he? But he did. I had to push it right down. And the same happened with his thumb for no, um, it was it was too good, 
but then it wouldn't go down and I had to press it down. And I, I wasn't, I didn't know what was going on. And his mother was sitting there watching her, her baby get his miracle. And she was in tears because, you know, this was all going to work, wasn't it? Taking tissues out and she wasn't crying out loud, but she was, you know, wiping the tears away, tears of joy. And I'm thinking this is all going to go for a ball of chalk. I can't stop him stammering like that. Come on. <laughs> um, and, um, and so I said to his subconscious, okay, so, uh, so are you happy for us to, um, to stop the stammering then? And, it, oh, yes, woo, you know, finger up, definitely. I said, no, no, I thought, I want you to say no, actually, because I know we, this is not going to work. So I want you to say no. So I said, no, no, don't misunderstand me. I said, I'm not talking about we'll make it a little bit better. I think we have to eradicate it completely. So are you up for that? Are you up for eradicating this this um, this stammer utterly and completely so he doesn't stammer whatsoever at all anymore? Yes, 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 yes. I'm thinking, no, 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 no. I want to know. <laughs> anyway, I thought, I don't know how the hell I'm going to do this. So so let's move on. Um, we'll come back to that in a bit. Yeah. Uh, so I said uh, he, he, he had all this um, grief over over his dad and was he blamed his dad for all his problems. And they were more extensive that I'm going to go into here. Um, and um, so he had, I, so I, I said that I was going to insert a, a tap in his neck and drain the pain away. So I, 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 had, a, I had a pen light, you know, one of the little yeah. light things. So I stuck that in his jugular vein and told him it was a tap and I counted to five while I drained all the pain out. Yeah, right. And, um, and then uh, I was, I mean, I was scratching around for stuff to do that before I woke him up. Mm. Um, then, then he, he couldn't forgive his dad because he couldn't say f- 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 forgive. Um, and so, um, so I t- used a completely inappropriate metaphor of black and white cowboy and Indian movies, which obviously, you know, <laughs> he'd never been to Saturday morning pictures. Come on. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I, so I explained about how the, you know, the cavalry officer gets this arrow thunk in his chest and it's got a barb on it and probably some poison on the end from these nasty Indians, sorry, Native Americans. And, um, and you know, the cavalry officer's got to pull the arrow out. And he knows that because of the barb, when he pulls the arrow out, it's going to hurt like hell. Mm-hmm. But the sooner he does it, the quicker he can heal. So he has to, you know, really gird up his loins and have big balls and grab hold of the, grab hold of the arrow and pull it out and throw it away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is all a metaphor for, you know, yeah. yanking, his, yanking his dad out. Yeah. Anyway, so, so, in, eh, so, I said, do you want to pull it out or shall I? And he wanted to pull it out. So he gets hold of this arrow that's stuck in his chest. And you can see the muscles starting to bulge on his arm while he's clutching this arrow. He yanks it out and hurls it across my consulting room. Obviously, there's nothing there. But by now, him and his mum and I are sitting in Richmond, Surrey. The arrow is in Armenia. I mean, he (laughs) lost the arrow. Um. And so, okay, that was all. Mum is now absolutely in a state of bliss. I mean, her baby is getting his miracle. I'm thinking, this is going to, I'm going to wake him up. He's going to go, I'm going to say, how do you feel? He's going to say, no. Eventually, I I thought, well, I've I've got to do something about this stammer then. So I went back to someone. I said, you sure you want to get rid of this stammer? He said, yes. I said, okay, in a moment, I'm going to clap my hands like this. The next time I clap my hands like that, no more stammer, okay? Yes. Okay. Oh God, no. Anyway, <laughs> here we go then. Three, two, one, and he shot forward on my couch like he had 
a volt of electricity up the lower end of his alimentary canal <laughs> and and then collapsed back against the couch. And I thought, what the going on here? Yeah. And then I started, then I went into full waffle mode because I didn't want to wake him up. I didn't want to wake him up and he would start stammering and his mum would think that she'd been let down. But eventually there was nothing else I could do, so I woke him up. And after, you know, count to ten, and he opened his eyes on eight, and on the count of ten he was wide awake. And before I said anything, he said, where have I been? Mm. And he said, you've been on a journey. I, personally, I don't like that journey word, but there we go. She said, you've been on a journey. And he started talking about this bright white light that he'd been seeing and I hadn't been doing any shining white light therapy or anything like that or, mm. or even thinking about it but he'd had this kind of glowing white light in his head and, th and he said then you stuck a tap in my neck and drained all the pain away and I was sitting next to the couch thinking shut up now don't say another word you haven't stammered don't ruin it but he went on talking and then he said he said mum why were you so sad and she said what do you mean he said well, i don't i just i just knew you were so sad but he he hadn't there was nothing he could hear about and she was going through the tissues but i don't think he could she wasn't making a noise anyway and he couldn't see anything uh, and he said anyway he said don't worry mum and he looked around the room and he said it's gone he said i can't stammer mm. i think oh i can't no Mm. No, he said, hey, mum, I can say stammer because, I mean, he couldn't say the word before. And he said, and then he looked around the room some more. He said, dad's gone too. Um, and and then he, and right. he went on like, I mean, it went on for about a few minutes. And I'm trying to play down all the expectations. I'm saying, <laughs> hey, this is great. All right. So, so you know, we, we now know he can he can talk for 15 minutes. So we can make 15 minutes an hour. You know, let's, let's not suppose it's going to stay like this necessarily. We can make 15 minutes an hour. We can make an hour a week. We can make a week a month. So, you know, this is all good. And we'll reconvene in a week's time. And that, then we were all standing up in my consulting room, group hug. We were all of us in tears. <laughs> It was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. All of us in tears, all hugging each other. And, 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 and this boy had now declared he wanted to be a hypnotherapist. Hypnotherapist is not the easiest way, word to say when you've just had the world's most debilitating stammer. Right. So anyway, off they went. Yeah. A week later, he came back, not with his mum, but with his girlfriend. He didn't have one of those before. And two other kids from college um, who'd come to gawp at the guy that performed this miracle. And they just stood at the door with their mouths open, I swear. Anyway, I took him in. We, d we did some more. So he hadn't stammered at all in the meantime. Not at all. Brilliant. And then we, I made a third appointment for another week because, you know, this, this is too good to be true. And he didn't turn up. And I thought he's relapsed. And the day late, the next day, he said he left a message on my answer machine saying that he... He hadn't been a, he, he couldn't come the following day, so he'd got the appointment wrong. He said he couldn't come the following day, uh, but he would call back to, to reappoint. A beautiful answer machine message, still not stammering. And I think, wow, he never called back. And I thought, this is the greatest hypno-anecdote I'm ever going to be able to tell, and it's all gone for a ball of chalk. He's relapsed. Well, of course he was going to relapse. I mean, come on get on the couch with one leg and get off again with two it doesn't happen i never heard from him again 
18 months later, his sister called because she was having man issues and, uh, and wanted an appointment with me. So she came along. And when she came along to see me, I said, how's your brother? And she said, great. He hasn't stammered. He's made a rap record. <laughs> <laughs> I, I promise you, honestly, he made a rap record. And, uh, and he still hadn't stammered 18 months later. And about three years after that, so this was some time ago, I got a letter from the Vatican because the mother had written to the Pope <laughs> proclaiming a miracle. Wow. Which was interesting on a number of levels because, yeah. A, I'm not Catholic. I am a Christian, but I'm mm. an Anglican. Um, but obviously she picked up that, you know, somehow or another that I was Christian and they were Muslim. Mm. <laughs> so she'd written to the Pope <laughs> proclaiming a miracle. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> That was one of those occasions when I wanted to take the top off the person's head and have a look inside to see what had gone on. What went it, on there? Yeah, really. I mean, oh, how do you bottle that? Yeah. Please, how do you bottle it and go and spray it over people to, you know, to, to relieve them of what can be a monumentally debilitating condition? Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, sorry. No, I, 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 I absolutely, you know, I, I'm gobsmacked with that. Um, I'm, I'm also, because I, I love the fact that you painted the scene of the, the group of you hugging in your office. And I've spent all these years because I've been following you and, and aware of you since since the Internet was early. And, and, you know, always thought this is Barry Thane, the NHS hypnotherapist who never pulls his punches. And now I'm seeing you as Barry Thane, the soft, huggable marshmallow of a man. Shush, you'll um, ruin um, my reputation. Is, which is lovely for me. <laughs> um, 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 you know, I, I really thank you for sharing that. That's lovely. Um, speaking of which, then, um, um, the reason I mentioned that, you know, is because I remember days before there were Facebook groups and things, and mm. there was the, the alt-hypnosis group online uh, where you were, used to be a major contributor in those days as well. Um, um, when I was, you know, in the early, really early stages of, of yeah. my own career and learning and, and so on. Um, if you could go back to some of those times, Barry, when you started out as a, as a hypnotherapist or a hypnosis professional, knowing the stuff that you know now after all these years, is there anything you do differently and if so what and is there some advice that the that the hypnosis well, that, that the hypnotherapist that you are today would give to the younger you that you'd extend to to other hypnotherapists of today um not a lot if i'm honest sure um i think one lesson that i have learned which um which i i wish i'd arrived at quicker than i did i suppose is that there's a fine line between being a hero and an idiot. Mm. And we cross that line at our peril. Um, I think particularly, I see a lot of hypnovices who want to cure everybody of everything and who proudly profess online their desire to go the extra mile in order to get their patient their outcome. Um, and I think all of those are treading that fine line between being a hero and an idiot. Mm, I, yeah. I think what people need to recognize is that crossing that line is great while it goes right, but it's not so great or not at all great when it goes wrong. And you can cross the line from being a hero in, in, into an idiot in order to get a great result for one patient. But when it blows up, you don't necessarily jeopardize just 
you know that your relationship with that one patient or the efficacy of what you've done with that one patient um but when it blows up you risk jeopardizing the work that you do with all of the other patients you have at the moment mm. um and all the other patients you might treat in due course and not only that you jeopardize your the security of your loved ones too so because you know you might have to stop doing this and go and get a job stacking the shelves at Sainsbury's instead mm. or worse um so i think there's a fine line between being a hero and an idiot i think we cross it at our peril and we all do cross it but i have to say these days i'm a lot less heroic than i used to be well um, um you know i i appreciate that, that humility and um, um i also think that you know i mean you, you and i probably have some 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 theoretical um differences between um our approaches or our, our considerations but i you know that that kind of um i i think there's an element of sobriety to to to, to what you do that that i that i really appreciate and and really enjoy um and speaking of which um, um let me ask you about your thoughts about evidence-based approaches to hypnosis i know we had some 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 small correspondence prior to to this recording um mm. where, where you talked about some some really interesting points <clears throat> that, that i'm hoping you'll raise now um i'm yeah. um, just just tell me just just share your thoughts about evidence-based approaches to hypnosis barry okay um I think the whole evidence-based cult is a bit of a green kipper and one that we probably shouldn't be too eager to swallow. Um, I blame Galileo personally. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, yeah. he, he can't God damn him. So that's all right. <laughs> yeah. uh, Galileo said, measure what is measurable and make measurable what is not measurable. And I think we've fallen into the trap of trying to change what could not be measured so it fits neatly into the available scales. If only Galileo had said, measure what is measurable and find a better way of measuring what is not measurable, then we might not be in this pickle. Sure. Um, the evidence based for nicotine replacement therapy is that it is less than 2% successful in getting people to quit smoking long-term. Yeah. Yet, NRT is still hailed as evidence-based. Yeah. Uh, the evidence-based for some antidepressants is that their net effect is less than the placebo effect yeah, of other equally heavily prescribed antidepressants. Yet, they are still evidence-based. Um, personal testimony is accepted as evidence in courts of justice every day. Mm. I don't know who made the suggestion that in the healthcare industry, personal testimony is just anecdote, and anecdote is a dirty word. Yeah. But I wouldn't be surprised if it was a copywriter working for the pharmaceutical industry. <laughs> Whoever it was, they persuaded the National Institute of Health and Clinical Excellence, and so far the rest has been history. We have a ludicrous situation where thousands of honest and sincere witnesses could be put on the stand and swear on oath that hypnotherapy had been the only thing that made them stop smoking. Only for some guy in a white jacket to say, sorry, not good enough, on the basis only that their genuine experience didn't fit the only method of assessment he'd been able to dream up. Yeah. Of course... It would be great to know what hypnotism is and how it works 
so that it could be replicated and sprayed over people, you know, like my stammerer, more efficiently. But, but the fact is, no one knows how or why most antidepressants work. Yeah. Only that they work for a few people some of the time. And that's the same for all psychotherapy. Although I wholeheartedly agree that the plural of anecdote is not data, evidence does not comprise of data alone. Witness statements are evidence. And to argue that they're not is laugh-in-your-face risible. As the um, great French mathematician Cédric Villeny is fond of pointing out, uh, we may be able to detect tiny particles in distant part of the galaxy, but we don't actually know what happens when water boils. Mm. Sometimes I think we expect too much of science and accept too little of what stares us in the face. Um, in any case, as, as far as most hypno research is concerned i think it's null and void because and you referred to this earlier yeah i think the vast bulk of hypno research is based on hypnotizability as assessed by the harvard and stanford scales and i worry that the harvard and stanford scales test suggestibility or gullibility or social or conscious compliance rather than hypnosis. Um, um, and uh, let me explain why. Um, I'm going to give you a couple of quotes, from one from the Harvard and one from the Stanford scale. Yes. See if you can tell why I think they might produce conscious compliance. And bear in mind that after these, there is nothing in the rest of the procedure to establish whether any phenomenon that do appear to be elicited are the consequence of hypnosis or conscious compliance. So anyway, the Harvard scale C form says, as, see why you think this might produce, con yes. why I think it might produce conscious compliance. Your ability to be hypnotized depends partly on your willingness to cooperate. You have already shown yourself to be cooperative by coming here today. And with your further cooperation, I can help you to become hypnotized. You can be hypnotized only if you are willing. I assume that you are willing and that you are doing your best to cooperate. All I ask of you is that you keep up your attention and interest and continue to cooperate as you have been cooperating. That's the Harvard C form. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the Stanford C form, very similar. You can become hypnotized if you are willing to do what I ask you to. And if you concentrate on the target and what I say, you have already shown your willingness by coming here today. And so I am assuming that your presence here means that you want to experience all that you can. You can be hypnotized only if you want to be. There would be no point in participating if you were resisting being hypnotized. What I want from you is merely your willingness to go along that Stanford scale form C. Yeah. So I think both of those in their in their um, preamble ask the people to do what I say. Sure. And I don't and there is no subsequent test to see whether people are just going along with it as they've been told to do or whether they they have no choice in the matter. And these phenomena are genuinely produced uh, elicited hypnotically and yeah. so i think you know i don't think that they have 
that that's a credible basis on which to conduct it. Now, in fact, I would prefer that they did the exact opposite. I'd much rather they said, don't cooperate. Don't just do what I tell you to do. Yeah, yeah, and, and uh, challenge think, their response. Yes, yeah. then then if you get something, you know that... I mean, that's what I do with my patients all the time. I'm always saying to them, for goodness sake, don't mislead me. Don't act. Don't pretend. Yeah. I need to know that my patient is hypnotised. Otherwise, I'm just having a chat at the bus stop. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I get that. And, you know, I, I really appreciate uh, I really appreciate your thoughts um, with regards to that. Thank you. Um, now then, Barry, before we start discussing other stuff and we move on to uh, our next section, tell me a little bit, um, where can people go to learn more about your work, your approach to hypnosis? They want to connect with you and, and what you do. Uh, they can go to mindside-clinic.com. Yeah. Um, along the way, I spent eight years... Uh, working with the occupational health department at Kingston Hospital. And while I was there, I used to do group supervision for uh, lots and lots of hypnotherapists that come from all over the country and sit at my feet while I dispense pearls of ignorance. Mm. And um, and on one occasion, I spent a whole day uh, doing what I called um, my clinical hypnotism in practice seminar. I only yeah. ever did it once. Oh, well, I did it once here. I did it once in San Francisco, but uh, the one here was much better. And a friend of mine videoed the whole thing, and then I stuck it on a DVD. And that's purchasable um, uh, if if people. It's it it's not really a tutorial. I don't think I can tell. I I can't tell you or any of your listeners how to practice. I can only tell you how I practice, mm. and then if people want to take anything from it and apparently often they do yeah. um uh then then good luck to them and a lot of people have taken a lot apparently from buying these chips dvds um i think if if, if i go back to what ken Sachek was doing was saying in in that question and answer that i went through earlier um he was saying don't don't try to be ericsson be yourself and yeah. i i do think that authenticity is, you know, along with being non-judgmental and uh, having unconditional acceptance and all those sort of things. Yeah. I think being authentic is really crucial to being any kind of therapist. Yeah. Um, you know, I genuinely believe that people by your sincerity and your integrity, long before they buy the content of your message, that they kind of get whether you're... Um, whether you're being straight and honest and uh, and talking from your heart, um, irrespective of almost what you're saying. Mm. So I think, you know, instead of trying to model what Ericsson had in his gut, find out and develop what you've got in your own gut. Don't try to be Adam Eason. Don't try to be Barry Thane. Don't try to be Dave Ullman. Don't try to be uh, Richard Bandler. Don't try to be any of these people. Try to be yourself. And mm. I, I think that's, you know, I... If everyone did that, I think they'd be better off, personally. Yeah. I, I'm absolutely, absolutely with you with that point. Um, 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 really important. Um, um, there will be a permanent link to, to the website that Barry mentions there. And I'm going to be speaking a little bit about this DVD um, um, myself later on as well, because I, I've watched it, really enjoyed it. Um, um, for now, um, Barry, thank you very much um, for that. We'll be right back with Barry Thane in just a few minutes' time.
enjoyed that, as I said, we'll be back with Barry for our professional discussion shortly. Um, so on to our news of the week. And there is some official news. That is that all hypnotherapists are now deemed world-renowned according to mainstream media. Yes, indeed, this is the news that a recent media report has demonstrated that all hypnotherapists are, in fact, world-renowned. I'm sorry, I can't keep up this uh, this this facade. Um, uh, as a child on April Fool's Day, when serving my parents up a boiled egg for breakfast, I couldn't hold back the laughter and always gave away the fact that it was an empty eggshell placed in the cup upside down before I'd actually given it to them. So today, our hypnosis in the news is a slight sideways step to usual, more of an opinion piece of my own. Um, a number of years ago, when the internet was relatively newish and everything was made of wood and cost 2p, we used to have a subheader on on, on, on my own website banner that read, the world's favourite hypnosis website. And I got an email from a disgruntled fellow hypnosis professional who, who emailed me and t- told me he'd never heard of me until that day. And he believed that this was a, a misleading statement. And I resisted the urge to bicker. But instead, we removed those words. And... Uh, Um, We wanted to put something more accurate, so we considered uh, in the top five specific UK hypnotherapy websites, according to Alexa rankings this week, but maybe not forever, or moderately well-known hypnotherapist among professional peers along the south coast of England, or currently on the front page of Google for a single hypnosis-related keyword in the UK only this week, though that may change soon. But none of these strap lines had the same sort of ring or impact that we were hoping for. Anyway, each day when I check through the hypnosis in the news stories that have made their way into the public eye, most hypnotherapists who've managed to reach the dizzy heights of having an article or a success story featuring them in the media are suddenly described as world-renowned. Yet I've never heard of most of them, and some of them not ever, you know, and I'm based in the same country as lots of them. Um, in the online Cambridge Dictionary, world-renowned is described as the following famous all over the world in a particular area of activity. So how can you be truly world-renowned? How can you be so if someone less than 50 miles from you has never heard of you and is in the same profession as you, and has been working in it for many years, and in fact is a super geek when it comes to tracking this field? And you know, I'm referring to myself here. Taylor Swift, world-renowned pop singer. Novak Djokovic, world-renowned tennis player. Lewis Hamilton, world-renowned Formula One driver. President Obama, world-renowned statesman. Jeff Smith, world-renowned hypnotherapist. Hang on, who? What? I was with you all the way up until Obama, Adam. So excuse my facetiousness this week. And, And also, if there is a Jeff Smith hypnotherapist out there, And there was a Jeff Smith that replied to this reference directly in my blog. And I'm going to set up a link so that you can go and see that if any of you could be can be bothered. But let's be honest, the only people that really verge on being world renowned, as Barry mentioned earlier on um, within our field, or at least alluded to, 
who have any relationship with the hypnosis field are probably Paul McKenna and Darren Brown. And they're not world-renowned because of their contribution to the field or because of the great work they've done with therapy clients, though TV would suggest Paul McKenna has done plenty of such things. But it's because of their performances and TV coverage primarily. Even then, there are massive sections of the world who do not recognise them as well as we do here in the UK, for example. And working in the hypnosis field is likely to put them on our radar even more so. The irony and upsetting thing for me is that those who think, um, 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 you know, those who, who I think ought to be world-renowned within our field simply aren't. You know, Irving Kirsch, Theodore Barber, Nicholas Spanos, Theodore Sabin, Stephen J. Lynn, major contributors to the evidence base of this field, yet the vast majority of professionals working in this field do not even know who they are, let alone have the public recognise them. So why the need to label ourselves something which I think actually undermines who you are and what you do? When the public read world-renowned hypnotherapist Jeff Smith, they do not agree with that statement. They've never heard of him. It's like the hypnotherapists who refer to themselves as hypnotherapists to the stars. Ha ha! This is usually on the back of a single PR story that was squeezed out in collaboration with the star seeking publicity of any kind. And the hypnotherapist, quite rightly, using it to derive some media column space and exposure for their business and their reputation. Do the general public genuinely regard you as a better therapeutic option because you claim to be a port of call for the rich and famous? I think it says more about the type of person you are than your skill or experience as a hypnotherapist. I think if you believe that to be true, you're not giving the public enough credit. It's fabulous that you are getting yourself out there, sharing your success, raising the profile of the field with this good news. But why sully it by referring to yourself as world-renowned when you are clearly not? I think remaining humble serves us better. So that's the end of my brief, grumpy, facetious hypnotherapy in the news bit today. Um, I'll be returning next time round with articles of good news, high spirits and some wonderfully valuable stuff to serve as a tonic for this dour sort of bleat that I've been offering up this week. And, and like I said, I actually wrote on this subject and a hypnotist in the US by the name of Jeff Smith actually emailed me. Um, um, he thought that he'd been pranked. Um, I, I've included a link to that article on my site so you can go and read my thoughts on it and see the real Jeff Smith re replying in the comments. And um, um, links to the references as always are in this week's podcast entry on the Hypnosis Weekly website. So on to onwards and upwards we have this week's professional discussion and I welcome back Barry Thane. When I asked Barry to come and join me on this podcast, I also asked him if we could discuss his hypnotherapy assessment approach. Um, I've seen Barry write often online about the importance of the assessment process. And when people have visited his um, MindSci Facebook group asking for ways to deal with a particular issue, for example, I've seen him explain in depth how assessment of the client should determine your approach more so than a blanket approach just just treating an issue, for example. Um, a number of years back, I also watched Barry's Chips video, which he spoke of in the interview earlier, and we'll refer to again here in this uh, discussion. And no, it's not about deep-fried cut potatoes. Here's this week's professional discussion with Barry Thane. Enjoy. <music> So I'm 
I'm delighted to be welcoming back uh, Barry Thane. Um, um, Barry mentioned uh, just towards the end of our interview there uh, a DVD uh, that, that I've watched and enjoyed uh, that Barry offers for sale his clinical hypnotism in practice seminar um, and, and in it he presents and discusses uh, the, the importance of the client assessment process, the, 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 the intake process um, and, and certainly something when I've, when I've ever been brave enough to, to venture on to, to, to any sort of hypnosis groups, one of the things that I've noticed in the past with regards to, to some of the, the commentary that Barry offers up is when when people on, on his popular group, for example, inquire about some of the best techniques to use for a particular type of issue, I've noticed on, on more than one occasion where Barry has tended to redirect the question in terms of the client, the individual, rather than just a sort of standardised blanket approach to, to the issue. Um, um, and I think there's much of value to be learned from Barry's approach with regards to assessment and client intake. So I sort of nagged him a little bit to share some of his approach with us here today. Um, Barry, can I ask you, first of all, could you just mm. give us a, an insight into your own process of client assessment or the, the intake process? Sure. Um, I think it starts with the initial inquiry and yeah. they these days they tend to come either by phone or increasingly I suppose by email or contact form from a website um, I always make sure or as far as possible I always make sure that first of all I, I take every inquiry seriously and play them with a straight bat I suppose like most people I get a few wacky inquiries yeah. um, but you know some of them turn out to be genuine uh, so I, I treat every inqu inquiry with a straight bat. I do write back trying to answer the person's, you know, they, they might send me a whole life history. Mm. Um, I try to, I don't fob them off. I will spend 15, 20 minutes sometimes writing a reply. And then I'll say, you know, in, uh, I'll say, um, you need to know that this is what I charge and this is when I see people. And if you want to discuss this or make an appointment, phone me. Um, I I do think it's very important to speak to people uh, rather than just rely on paperwork and forms. Yeah, yeah. real so, life human interaction. Yes, of course. Yeah, of course. So, which is one of the reasons why I don't I'm not a big fan of these appointment booking services that exist. Mm. You know, I know I can't answer the phone while I'm treating a patient and I know Monday to Friday nine to six most of the time I'm treating a patient but people leave messages mm. you know and I phone them back or they send an email and I phone them back or they don't leave a message and you just see that you've missed a call and then what do you do and I know I mean you know, I, I know that sometimes it can take people years to pluck up the courage to call me yeah I've had people who say, you know, I'll say to them, where did you get my, my details from? Oh, I, I saw an interview with you in the, in the Richmond and Twickenham Gazette or whatever. And I'll say, well, that's interesting. That was four years ago. <laughs> <clears throat> and they say, yeah, I cut the article out. It's been in my bedside drawer ever since. Yeah. And it takes them that long to pluck up. The, so I think if I don't chase patients, I don't chase appointments, I don't chase session fees or anything like that. Mm. But I think sometimes it can take somebody a long time to pluck up the courage to phone. And then all you see on your phone is missed call right. from such and such a number. Yeah. I phone them back. 
I phone and I say, hi, I missed your call. I'm sorry. I was treating somebody. Do you want to talk to me? Mm. And, um, and then at, at, at some point in that conversation, we agree to make an appointment or sometimes they want to go, go away and do some more research, which is fine. Um, they always come back. Um, when I was doing group supervision, I used, one of the, I, I used to ask people for their hot topic. And um, so, so when people sent in their sort of their application for a, for a seat, um, they'd list what they wanted to talk about. And one of the things I got after rapid inductions, because always it was rapid inductions, that was always the most popular thing. Um, but the next most important one was DNAs, did not arrive. So people mm. that had uh, arranged to see somebody and they, they simply don't show up. Yeah. And I don't get them. I don't get them at all. I haven't had a DNA since, I don't know, 15 years or whatever. Wow. And I've only probably had two in the whole of my career. And one of those was a young girl that I'd seen in, in a free group therapy session at my GP's who made an appointment to come and see me privately, who was brought by her mother. And her mother had a look at the house and thought her daughter, who was 19, was going in to see this single male hypnotist. And the mother got scared and drove away and, and phoned the GP to check my bona fides. And then the daughter made an appointment. I do not get DNAs. And I think the reason I don't is because when people phone up and say, can you help me? I say, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of people, are. I, certainly I was taught, you have to say, yes, of course I can help you. You know, I've got lots of experience in this and definitely I can help you. These are people who have been suffering with their issue for a long time, who have been through every sort of therapy and nothing has worked for them. And then we say, yeah, of course I can help you. Well, I've, I think they've heard it before. Mm. They've heard it from all the other people who couldn't help them. Yeah. And, and I don't, I honestly, even if it's somebody, I mean, I've stopped a lot of people from eating things they shouldn't be eating or taking drugs they shouldn't be taking and whatever else. And still, if somebody phones me and says, you know, can you, can you stop me being a cocaine addict? I'll say, I don't know. Mm. I, I, the fact that I've stopped lots of other people doing it doesn't mean I'm going to be able to stop this person. That's the God's honest right. truth. Yeah. I will say, I don't know. And I think that's very reassuring to people, um, counterintuitively, perhaps. Yeah. But I think that's very reassuring. So I don't, I don't get DNAs. Anyway, so I'm, I make the appointment. I do not do free sessions. I do not do free introductories or anything like that. I make the appointment. They come. They sit down. I, oh, I send an appointment confirmation letter, which sets out, you know, the fees and, you know, all that sort of stuff so that people yeah. know what they're coming to. Um, and then they come and I take a case history. And I start off by saying, when I hypnotize you, what do you want me to do for you? And you'd be amazed how different that can be to what they've told you on the phone three days ago. Because <laughs> yeah. Because to think about it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, or, or they've just, they've overcome that hurdle of getting help. And because, it, I mean, it's like over a watershed or something. They, they, they get past that point. They just, they just want to talk. They want to open up. Then I take a case history, and the case history is, in a way, it's quite formulaic. It hasn't really changed very much since I started. When I started, um, I wasn't trained in taking case histories at all. LCCH, at, the, at that time, did not do anything about taking case histories. I'm amazed that I never see people offering workshops or seminars or um, master classes in taking case histories because mm. i think it's so very very important treat the person 
not the problem is my creed occur yeah. treat the person not the problem um and so i take a case history i i cobbled my case history form together by downloading i don't know case histories that doctors doctor's forms or whatever i could find on the internet and stitched it together and it became my own form and i still use more or less the same thing today and i worked through a number of questions as a basis more or less systematically um i will add questions uh because i listen to what the person is saying and sometimes that takes me off down other routes but i ask a lot of questions which would seem completely inappropriate to the to the condition and you'd be amazed at what comes out yeah uh, um I, mean, I, I remember a woman a peripatetic psychiatric nurse came to see me to stop smoking and mm. i said um so this is your address what's that like then <laughs> she said it's a two-bed prison <laughs> <laughs> oh really and you know and then she went on to tell me about her controlling father um, who, I mean, she was a middle-aged woman and her dad would make her a packed lunch and then he'd phone her at two o'clock to make sure she'd eaten it. <laughs> and smoking was the only thing she did in her life for herself. Right. It was her little portable piece of independence. And now she was going to give that up and she mm. would have no individual identity whatsoever anymore. So I go, I go through the questions and I ask them. And I think, I, I know, particularly in America, it's fashionable to send out intake forms and get people to fill in their answers and then, you know, read them before the session. I, I oh, hate that idea with a vengeance. You have to see how the person answers the question. When you say to somebody, um, so, you know, are, are you married, single, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever? And they say, I'm married. And you say, how's the marriage? Mm. Oh, it's great. Well, you know from the big pause that it isn't great. Yeah. It's sure. the pause that tells you that there is some something here. It may or may not be germane to the issue, um, but uh, but it might. Um, and so and you don't you don't see the pause if somebody's just written down on a piece of paper. Marriage equals great. Yeah. It doesn't tell you anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I take the case history and then at the end of the case history, I say, do you have any questions you want to ask? And the. Um, the one that the most frequently asked question is, am I going to give up my deep, dark secrets on the couch? Mm. <clears throat> and I say, no, because you're going to tell me now. And they <laughs> say, I haven't got any deep, dark secrets. And I say, yes, you have. Otherwise, you wouldn't have asked me about them. And they say, I don't want to go there. <laughs> and yeah. I say, you, you can't tell a shrink you don't want to go somewhere and expect to get away with it. Yeah. So, so, uh, so you better go there. And then they tell me that they're, you know, they've been having an affair with their brother or something. And I say, okay. Um, and 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 actually, then somebody just says okay, and it doesn't seem so horrible after all. Mm. Um, and there, there have certainly been instances that I can think of where all the therapy or, or the greater part of the therapy has been secured in the taking of the case history. So, for example, I treated a, a lady for labyrinthitis yeah. and she will tell anybody who wants to listen and plenty of people who don't that, that I saved her life. Um, she was suicidal with the labyrinthitis, although mm -hmm. great case history taker me, I hadn't figured that out. Right. 
Um, but she was. I found out about that later. But when I was taking her case history and she was telling me all about the grapefruit psoriasis and the vertigo and the, the hair falling out and yeah. so on and so forth, um, I, I said to her, well, you know, you will get better. Um, and, and maybe I had no right to say that. Um, uh, but I did say it. And I think that nobody had said that to her before. And I think all that did, it made her relax about it a bit. Mm. And because she relaxed about it, it gave her natural healing um, an opportunity to work or work quicker than it otherwise would have done anyway. But that little thing, well, you will get better, you know. And similarly, I I treated a celebrity, um, uh, the victim in a celebrity rape case, Um, celebrity rape case in the, you know, it was all over the papers at a moment in time. And I listened to her story, and her story was awful. Mm. Not just because of the assault, but because of all the circumstances surrounding it with her employer and so on and so forth. Um, And I listened to it, and at the end of it, I said, I'm really sorry that should never have happened. You know, that was awful. And I know there's a a school of thought which says that you – um don't reinforce their 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 trauma yeah um don't don't tell them that you, that's really really bad because you just make it worse yeah but actually she said afterwards that it came as such a relief to her that somebody else actually thought it was what had happened to her was wrong too mm. um and she hadn't heard that from anybody before so i mean there are two examples there where a little thing said in the course of the case history yeah. It's been has been really important. But fundamentally I think you treat the person, not the problem. Yeah. And I think the stuff you learn about the person is going to some extent um uh inform the kind of therapy that you're going to do with them. I like to look in the case history I well not look for, but during the course of a case history, I suppose maybe six or seven times out of ten the person will come up with a phrase yeah just two or three pithy little words that almost sneak out um without them meaning to say it that really encapsulates the whole of what they're about Mm. um and i love those little bits where they say i just wish i had more kadumpf you know because that they you could ask them for the whole of the week to explain exactly what they mean by kadumpf. Yeah. And consciously they could try and deconstruct it and give you every little component part. And at the end of it all, they'd still be missing things. So even you go, you spend the next week going back and installing every little component part of kadumpf, um, you'll still miss things because there've been things that they haven't given you, but in their brain, in their mind, they have a model of what kadumpf is, and they know about that. Well, not consciously, but the model contains every subtle detail and fine nuance. Yeah. So, if we go back to the inductive deductive reasoning thing, what I think I want to be doing in hypnosis is getting them into that hypnotic state where I can say, Here, have some more kadumpf. And they know what it means, even if I don't. Yeah. And they then express all the fine nuances and subtle details that they know of 
as a logical consequence of now operating this model where they have more kadumph. So I think the case history is really, really, it's very, very important to me. Yeah, yeah. And I have a good case history. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that really comes across in your DVD as well. And um, I mean, one of the things, you know, with, with regards to, 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 I mean, just those two illustrations, just those two examples, for example, um, do, do you find, therefore, that, that you know, that the, the process, the assessment, the client history is therefore valuable in other ways and, and rather than just being a sort of interview forward slash information gathering that also it has some therapeutic value in and of itself yeah, and, I think and it, helps it, the client to understand their own issue i think helping the client to understand their own issue happens sometimes it's not something i'm no. trying to do no. I'm, I'm not really trying to give them insight uh into it all but sometimes it does happen mm. uh, i there was an occasion when I was treating an actress for um, for bulimia, and uh, I, I, you know, a standard part of my case case history is, you know, are your mum and dad still alive? How old? What's your, what their names? How old's your mum? How old's your dad? You got on well with your parents, and uh, and this actress started talking about her mum, uh, and and then she kind of stopped herself and said. Oh, and you know, no, but it's not fair to me, fair of me to blame everything on my mum. And I said, oh, maybe not. But, you know, if you want to talk about your mum, go on. And I could see her eyes sort of glassing over. Mm. Um, so and she carried on talking about her mum. And then and, and I shut up and listened while she talked about her mum. Mm. And then the tears sort of welled over her lower eyelids and started to run down her face. So I gave her a tissue and otherwise shut up and listened because I don't know what to say. And she talked about her mum and she would, she was catching the tears on her cheekbones and I let her go and talk about her mum. And then she was catching the tears on the, uh, on her jaw and I let her go and talk about her mum. And then she didn't bother anymore and the tears were falling on her chest. And I let her go on and talk about her mum until she finished. And that proved to be very, very cathartic to yeah. her because you know she'd resisted for a long time talking about her mum and now she talked about her mum and she you know kids get scared about the 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 monster under the duvet or in the cupboard or whatever yeah. um and i think we, we f mostly we fear the unknown sometimes it helps if you take the duvet off and see there's nothing there or that what is there is it's not a monster, it's uh, that teddy bear you lost. Um, or you open the cupboard door and, you know, and, and get it out. Very often things get depotentiated when they become less secret, less locked away. Um, so I think that I, I do think that's an important yeah. part of the process. But often um, we've had no therapeutic result whatsoever during the course of the case history and I put them on the couch and then I run a bunch of different inductions to see which ones they respond to best yeah. and hypnotize them yeah into yeah. a state <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're trying to provoke me now uh, so so t tell me then I mean you spoke a little bit about how, how that how that evolved um, um, how that evolved over the years and, and how your, your your approach sort of sort of developed with experience were, were you ever influenced by any type of standardized assessment procedure no i think i said earlier i i found some standard 
um, forms or documents online somewhere and and cut and paste and cobbled them together and changed well listed the questions and then did the layout yeah. to sort myself and it, originally i set my um my form up my case history form which is four a4 sheets yeah uh, so that when i filled it in on the computer yeah it automatically oh, it was linked to a relational database i use word i use all the microsoft stuff so word access right, that kind yeah. of thing so it would fill automatically fill certain details into the to the patient record in the database um which i developed myself and i could then produce from the database doing a mail merge without really any more input on my part other than filling in the case history yeah. Um, a letter that I could send to their GP, say, because I used to collect their doctor's details in the very, very early days, because I was led to believe that was really important. You know, somebody had said, you mustn't treat anyone without their doctor's consent. Sure. <clears throat> well, what a lot of nonsense. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> um, sure. But I but so I, I but I did used to write to doctors and say, as a matter of courtesy, and say that I'm treating your patient um, you know, and if you want to know any more about it, by all means, get in touch. They never did. So, or they very rarely did. Yeah. So, um, it was much more the case that doctors would send me their patients in the first place. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I stopped doing that years and years ago. So there are bits on the form that I don't use anymore. Originally, um, I mean, this, uh, back in the dark ages when we, uh, you and I both started practicing and we used to chisel our case histories on tablets of stone um, <laughs> I, I, w I used to send out the appointment confirmation letter by post and I'd put in there a little relaxotherapy cassette and a bookmark to hope they remembered me and all sorts of stuff like that so I still mm. have on the on the bottom of my actually on the bottom of my initial inquiry form little boxes to tick to remind myself or, or, or my practice manager the beloved Mrs. Thane uh, at the time yeah. that she needed to send these things out uh, but I don't do any of that anymore it's all it, I, I can't remember the time I last had to post something it's all email these days yeah absolutely and the um the the the, the sort of off-piste stuff that you referred to earlier you know the little sort of um side side glance questions and a little bit of you know how's that going or how's that working out type of stuff is that just really a culmination of of the, the depth of experience that you've had and being able to to sort of work out what what would fit or what would be okay with the client and and what you feel would be appropriate and pertinent and and so on with regards to that and what you feel would would elicit the most value for you um i wish i thought in those kind of analytical terms but honestly i don't so um i think i i mean and it sounds horribly arrogant, but I have lost count of how many thousands of sessions I have done. Yeah. Um, but I honestly believe I've never done the same session twice. No. So uh, every session, the core of my therapy is improvisation. Yeah. I'm. I, I ages and ages and ages ago, right, right in the very, very early days, um, a doctor wanted me to treat them for hypertension. 
and they had to take a medical examination for some insurance policy and they knew they were going to fail because although they'd been medicated for it since they were a teenager, they still suffered from, quote, essential hypertension. They made two appointments to come and see me, one on a Monday and one on the Friday of the same week. Yeah. And because this was a doctor, and I think it was the first doctor I was ever going to treat, I spent a week in advance working out this fantastic guided visualization for a healthy cardiovascular system. And it was the dog's gonads, I <laughs> promise you. It was brilliant. It was a work of science and art all rolled into one. Michelangelo at his finest. Yeah. Um, so she came along and I took the case history and I was about to put her on the couch and she said, is it all right if I wear this? And she took her blood pressure monitor out of her bag and put it on her wrist. Mm-hmm. And I, my brain's going, no, 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 no. We are not doing this. My stupid mouth said, yeah, all right then. Um, so she put the blood pressure monitor on, took her blood pressure. And she knew the last 10 blood pressure readings she had off by heart. Um, anyway, her, it was whatever it was. And she said, can you take my blood pressure when we're in the middle of the hypnosis? Oh, God. Yeah, all right then. Um, so I, I, I hypnotized her and I'm going along and I'm doing this fantastic guided visualization for a healthy cardiovascular system. And it's brilliant, brilliant. I, and she's, well, I mean, she's out with the pixies. This is wonderful. I take yeah. her blood pressure. It is monumentally worse than it was before we started. <laughs> I thought, I thought, okay, um, I'll lie about it. And then I realized I couldn't lie about it because the machine recorded the, the readings and she knew them off by heart anyway. There was no way I was getting away with this. So... Eventually, I woke her up and she said, how was that then? As she pressed the blood blood pressure monitor to take her blood pressure again. It was, you know, it was 500 over 382 or so. No, it wasn't that bad. (laughs) I thought any moment now the blood is going to start seeping out of her pots. It was, yeah, exactly. It was even worse. And, And she looked at it. She was horrified. And I said, yeah, I know. Shut up. Go back to sleep. I hypnotized her again. I did some some rubbish or another. And when I woke her up, um, it was it was worse than when we started but not nearly as bad as it had been and i then came out with this awful rubbish where i said well you know it's come down from when you woke up to where it is now and if we can repeat that again over the next three sessions you know or whatever we'll we'll get it down below 90 which is where you need to be for your for your medical Mm. i thought i'm never going to see her again she's not coming back on friday no (laughs) way in the world is she coming back on friday and then I thought about it. And the other thing she had going on, she was a, uh, she had a, perf- a performance anxiety. I won't go into the details of it. Mm. She had a performance anxiety. Um, and I'd, I'd done a little bit about that as well. Not very much. Anyway, she did come back on Friday and she asked me to video the session. <laughs> so I set the video camera up and I know to this day she's never watched it because when I woke her up from the second session, she said, and, and we had the blood pressure monitor again, and you know it was coming down a little little by little mm. um, and she said to me at the end of the second session, she said, I, "I loved all the stuff you were doing about my performance anxiety, but I must have tripped out for the stuff you were doing on my blood pressure. Well, maybe, but actually i didn 't do anything about a blood pressure at all in the second session. Mm. I realized that in the first session, this woman was obsessed with her blood pressure. And all my brilliant guided visualization for a healthy cardiovascular system had done was feed her obsession. No yeah. wonder it went through the roof. Right, yeah. So in the second session, I ignored it altogether, did the performance anxiety. Her blood pressure came down. At the end of the fourth session, she was 122 over 78, and she ran out of the consulting room. She phoned me an hour later, said, I'm so sorry. I said, why? 
she said, well, you know, I was, I was in a state of shock, 122 over 78. I, I, I couldn't believe it. I, I, I fled. She said, anyway, I'm 122 over 77 now. I can't thank you enough. And, mm. uh, and then she had her medical and they took her blood pressure three times and she was fine and they took her off the medication. So I learned then you can do too much practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, preparation. And, um, and so and I improvise. I listen to the patient. I listen with my ears, I listen with my heart, and I try to understand what it is they need, and I create afresh, I think, every time. And, um, and so I, whilst I'm fond of my methods of work outside of the therapy, outside of the intervention, yeah. um, I think the intervention itself is improvised and that's a mixture of being intuitive and intellectual yeah yeah um um barry i could just i could just keep asking you about this stuff where we're at with time um, um th th this is going to be a bumper episode anyway as a result um, <laughs> um thank you ever so much that's great um, um again there will be links to, to to barry's site and the references that barry's given uh, during the interview and today's discussion um all really leaves for me to say barry thane thank you ever so much it's been my pleasure adam thank you <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed that discussion. Some fascinating information there. As a result of chatting to Barry, I did indeed go and Google Dr. Kenneth Sacek. And my apologies to any of you who spotted some squeaking noises in the background during either of today's recordings. I have a very handsome new leather-bound chair that I sit in when interviewing, and upon moving, it squeaks. There is a link to the website of Barry's MindSide Clinic, along with a link to his Clinical Hypnotism in Practice seminar DVDs over at this episode's page of the hypnosis weekly website so on to our evidence-based hypnosis factoid of the week and it is that hypnosis can help with eating disorders in a study conducted by baker and nash back in 1987 staged treatment of anorexia conducted with hypnosis outperformed the same treatment without hypnosis and hypnosis helped alter distorted body image too Additionally, in a study by Griffiths and colleagues in 1996, hypnosis was found to be as effective as CBT and outperformed waiting list control groups when treating bulimia nervosa. These studies both met with strict criteria set by Chambliss and Holland with regards to study design in order to be considered as an empirically supported treatment. A link to both studies will be on this episode page of the Hypnosis Weekly website. I do have many more exciting guests that are welcome to Hypnosis Weekly in coming weeks. We'll be discussing, debating, celebrating and above all, remaining friends. To repeat, all the references made in the discussions along with related links are posted at each episode on the Hypnosis Weekly website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. Next time out, I welcome Mark Tyrrell as my guest. That show will be out in two weeks' time as I'll be away teaching next week. I'll make sure that my returning show is proper bow, though. Selector. 
I absolutely welcome your thoughts, comments, suggestions and questions. So do please message me or add them on the Hypnosis Weekly website and I'll make sure they are addressed, answered and explored accordingly. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else to really help us reach the hypnosis field. Thanks again to Barry Thane. My thanks to you for tuning in. My name is Adam Eason. This has been Hypnosis Weekly. Until next time, goodbye for now. Thank you.